We tend to view the past using rose-colored glasses, but should we? This show delves into the dark recesses of human history to see if the good old days were truly the good old days. This is Kinsey, and I'm Lost Boys Old. And this is Ellie, and I'm Interview with a Vampire Old. Lots of uh, vampire references there. I know, I know. It's <laughs> You know, I feel like I've had a week of dealing with a lot of uh, energy vampires. <laughs> so this You must is a, be talking about coworkers. Yeah, uh, so just just people that I deal with in my day-to-day life. Um, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's making this a really apropos topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a... He's not a boss. He's kind of a boss, pseudo boss, I guess, for another department. But every time I talk to him, I'm always just exhausted. He wants to turn everything into a Tableau dashboard. Literally every single report needs to be a dashboard. And I I, I don't know. Yeah, it's just the, the people who got to take molehill and turn it into a mountain that everyone's got to talk about. And it's just tiring. <laughs> you know, I miss the good old days when computers were a lot less complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you know that way back when, in the good old days, New Englanders burned vampires? In New England? Yeah, In New England. <laughs> That's a wicked pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I think Bostonians have the coolest accent, but that, I'm, I'm a little biased. <laughs> <laughs> and just because last week we decided everything sounds way cooler in Latin, our word of the episode is la mia. Well, park the car in Harvard Yard and let me set the scene for you. Back in the good old days. Our story begins in the late 18th, early 19th century. You know, the same time when Napoleon was waging war against European coalitions, the Ottoman Empire started its decline, and the U.S. began to realize its manifest destiny. This is also when scientists became a word, which is super exciting. Also around this time, Alessandro Volta was working on the electric battery, the steam locomotive was in operation, and New Englanders were going after vampires. Hold up. We were hunting vampires during the same era we were riding trains? Like, actually hunting vampires? Like, Dracula vampires? What did we do? Well, there are many, 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 many examples. This isn't a one occurrence, so grab some popcorn and settle in. Let's start in my absolute favorite New England state, the Green Mountain State. Atlas Obscura actually has the location of a graveyard in Dummerston, Vermont, that is believed to contain graves of the Spalding family. If you wish to visit respectfully, you can just go on that website and look it up. Now, in the 1780s, three children and the father died. Five more children died in the 1790s. Wait, five more children of the same family? So. We're at eight now? People back then needed lots of kids to run the farm. People in town described these specific kids as having the life sucked out of them. The corpse or the kids from working so hard? Well, the kids after they came down with consumption. That's how they were described as the life was sucked out of them. Now, these are the days of the Puritan. So what did they do when they didn't understand something? They blamed it on the absurd. And in this case, it was a vine. Yep, a vine. This vine had burrowed in the family plot, and every time this magical vine touched another coffin, a Spalding child died. 
So what did they do? What any sane person would do, of course. They dug up the body, hacked it, and burned it. This isn't the only historical account that blames this dastardly vampiric vine. This Gracie story is also in the history of the town of Dummerston, a not-so-riveting book about who deeded what land to who. There's a nugget of interesting information. Now, Lieutenant Spaulding had large, muscular sons, and that's all in quotation because that's literally what the book says. He also had daughters, but they were not described. Nobody cared. (laughs) Now, all except (laughs) one or two of these large, muscular sons died before the age of 40 of consumption. The daughters also died, but that was an afterthought in this book, so there's really no information about the daughters. No, naturally. Naturally. All of these siblings that died had the appearance of good health and long life. But as the vine grew and touched the newest coughing, another Spaulding would die, one by one. Until the last body was dug up, chopped, and burned. Then, it is affirmed, to quote the book, that the daughter lived many years. I never really understood why they hacked the body if the vine was at fault. Why not just dig up the vine? Hmm. Anywho... Nine family members died before the corpse was destroyed, including all of the men. Genealogical research does show that the entire family perished except three daughters who lived 50 more years or so after this incident. So I suppose any one of these three women could have been the surviving sister that the book mentioned. Now, let's hop on over to Manchester, Vermont. It's a gorgeous hour, 15-minute drive from Dummerston. But I don't know how I'd feel about making that ride on a horse. (laughs) Now, in 1792 in Manchester, according to Vermont historian Mark Bushnell, Captain Isaac Burton lost two wives within a year of each other. Rachel Burton died and was buried. Then, not even a year later, his new wife, Holda Burton, died. No one thought, hmm, two wives. Should Captain Burton be considered a suspect? Nope. Their thought is, oh, that poor man, it must be supernatural because no man can do anything wrong. Oh, of course not. But I digress because in this case, he actually didn't do anything wrong. But I just never understood why their first thought is supernatural. Anywho, the good old townspeople became fixated on a demon vampire, a.k.a. Rachel Burton, the first wife. They dug her up and burnt her somewhat fresh corpse at a nearby forge. One of the attendees of the burning said they took out her liver, heart, and lungs, or what remained of them, because, you know, she was dead, and burned them. In fact, this witness goes on to say that Timothy Mead, whoever he is, officiated at the altar a sacrifice to the demon vampire who they believed was sucking the blood of the then-living wife of Cat and Burton. Then the witness says, and I quote, it was the month of February and good sleighing. Like this was an everyday occurrence, you know? Pretty good weather. We went sleighing and then we made a sacrifice to the demon vampire. Just another Tuesday. Well, that's not how you spend your Tuesdays? I don't know about you, but I generally prefer sacrifice to be a weekend thing. Uh. Now, this guy, <laughs> good sleighing guy, also adds that about 500 to 1,000 people were present. Totally get it. Not like they had TV or Netflix back then. And their sled was probably broken, so there was nothing else to do but make sacrifices to the demon vampire. Now, I wish this was the end of that story, but that's just Vermont. Let's travel a bit further south to Rhode Island. A farmer, Stuckley Tillinghast, had a dream that half his orchard would die. Now, he forgot all about his dream 
until his oldest daughter, Sarah Tillinghast, died in 1799 of consumption. She was buried, and they tried to move on. But then a second daughter started deteriorating and claimed that Sarah was visiting her every night and that Sarah was sitting on her chest. She died shortly after. Then four more children died, claiming that Sarah was visiting them too. At this point, the neighbors wanted to exhume the bodies. Honestly, after six children all saying that she's visiting them, I think I'd be suspicious too. Well, when they dug up the graves, all of the bodies were in normal state of decay except for Sarah, who the neighbors allege was well-preserved. Her eyes were allegedly open, her hair and fingernail appeared to have grown, and fresh blood was inside her heart. This proved to them that Sarah was the culprit behind the deaths of her siblings. So they cut out her heart and burnt it on rock. Afterwards, they reinterred the corpses. Unfortunately, even though they killed the vampire, Stuckley's son soon fell ill and became the seventh and final victim. It's almost like that's not what was killing them. No, Ellie, it was the leftover supernatural power. Everybody knows this. All right, so we've been to Vermont, we've been to Rhode Island. Let's see what other state had vampires. In the 1850s in Jewett City, Connecticut, Horace Ray and two of his children died of consumption. When a third child became sick, the townspeople, as townspeople often did with these deaths, exhumed the two brothers, but not Horace for some reason, burned them on a great pyre and fed the ashes to the third child. Mm Mm-mm. Sibling ashes, nature's Tylenol. (laughs) (laughs) The only cure for supernatural diseases. (laughs) There's no mention if this third sibling lived or died, but I'm going to go out on a limp and say he's most definitely dead now. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Almost 50 years after Jewett City vampires, we actually have one of the best preserved accounts regarding an exhumation of a vampire in Rhode Island. This also appears to be the last documented uh, exhumation of a vampire. All right, so we're back to Exeter, Rhode Island for this one. By the 1890s, yes, I said 1890, less than 25 years before World War I, the population of Exeter had dropped to less than 1,000 people. Many of the farms within the town were abandoned as many died during the Civil War or left for railroads or westward expansion. So this dwindling town was home to one particular family, the Browns. According to legend, told by their great-great-great-great-nephew or something, Lewitt Everett Peck, he's really not sure how he's related, but he knows he's related. Many people in the family in the 1890s were dying of a mysterious ailment, and only 12 men were left. So those men got together during the winter and took a vote on what to do. They dug up one grave. How they picked this grave, no one knows. But this one grave belonged to Mercy Brown. And lo and behold, Mercy had turned over in her grave. Maybe it's because she was being disturbed. Maybe. (laughs) Sarcasm aside, there is actually proof that Mercy Brown existed and died along the same timeline of this gentleman's story. There's also proof that her grave was dug up after her death. Now, back to Peck's story. He said the 12 men saw that she had not decomposed and her hair and fingernails continued growing. So they took her heart, burned it, and did something with the ashes. Peck couldn't remember what. Probably ate it. (laughs) That's what they did back then. (laughs) Caviar, ashes, you know. Mm. (laughs) 
Now, to prove his story, Peck provided the author, Michael Bell, with newspaper clipping. If you're interested, the Providence Journal on Saturday, March 19th, 1892, had the headline of Bodies of Dead Relatives Taken from Their Graves. Now, the author, Michael Bell, he didn't just take Peck's word for it. He did his own research and found that the Brown family tragedy began in 1883 with the wife of George Brown dying of what was then called consumption. Within months, his daughter, Mary, and then within a year, his son, Edwin, died. In the fall of 1891, Edwin Brown, a strapping young lad of 18, newspaper quote, not mine, became ill. He moved to Colorado and recovered. Then his sister, Mercy, became sick and died. Edwin moved back to Exeter, and his condition worsened. The town people described his body as if something had sucked the life out of it. You know, you'd think they have better vocabulary back then instead of just sucking the life out of stuff. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so they decided, must be a vampire, because that's totally logical. <laughs> In the entire town of fewer than a thousand people, only the Browns were afflicted. So naturally, it was a vampire spirit that was inhabiting a deceased family member. They dug up three people, not one, as Peck said. And Mercy's body had not decayed. All right, sidebar. Any of y'all been to New England in the winter? It's cold in them nar hills, and generally bodies don't decay much in the cold. Just saying. All right, now, Mercy died in the fall, and this was the winter, so I would imagine her body had not decayed. But then again, I, I wasn't there. I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> All right, sidebar over. So the newspaper article actually says there was color in her cheeks. So they removed her heart and liver, burned them, and fed the ashes to Edwin as prescribed by his doctor. Shockingly, it didn't cure him. I'm thinking that's because he needed the ashes of two siblings, not just one. You know, you could have totally been a doctor in the 1800s. Nope. Wait, you're a girl. No doctoring for you. Oh, nuts. <laughs> Now, here's another account of how they first exhumed the remain of Mrs. Brown, the mother, who had been dead for nine years. And she didn't have a heart because, you know, she's been dead for nine years. Then they dug up Mary, another sister, and saw that only a skeleton with a thick head of hair remained. Then they exhumed Mercy and found that the body was in a fairly well-preserved state because, you know, it's been buried for two months. Legend also has it that Bram Stoker heard the story of Lena Mercy and named his main character Lucy, you know, Lena, Mercy, Lucy, in his famous novel, Dracula. Now, credit to the Brown father here. He didn't actually want to burn his daughter's organs, but he felt compelled to placate his neighbors. Spoiler alert, none of these people were actual vampires and medical tests have proven that most of the individuals I talked about had died of tuberculosis, which was then called consumption. Early medical records from the vampiric eras of New England described the symptom of consumption as a cough that progressed to a recurring hemorrhage. The cough, frequent and bothersome in its early stages, later became chronic with hollow death rattles. The face gained a death-like pallor, which was masked by a glowing, feverish flush. As hemorrhaging became more frequent, bloody discharge was measured first by teaspoons, then by cups. I probably should have given a warning here. <laughs> Sorry, <Delicious>. guys. <laughs> Besides vampires, too much sex, overindulgence of foods, drink, or tobacco— 
unconventional behavior, lack of exercise, and even a passion for dancing were considered causes of consumption during the 19th century. Now, specific remedies recommended by these genius doctors included shutting the patient in a closed room, relocating them to a different climate, horseback riding, incising the chest wall to collapse the lung, inhaling warm air followed by rubbing the chest with sulfuric acid or just the random bloodletting. That escalates so quickly. Shut them in a room, take a vacation, or inflict pneumothorax with an era of questionable sterilization and no antibiotics. (laughs) Sulfuric acid on the skin is just a nice touch. Ouch. (laughs) Even crazier, the Animistic Vampire in New England was published in American Anthropologist. This is a peer-reviewed journal in 1896 by George Stetson. He claimed to have at least 10 incidences of vampirism in South County in Rhode Island alone. Of course. Even Henry David Thoreau talked about an exhumation and heartburning in his journal in the mid-1800s. Thoreau himself died of consumption, although he wasn't exhumed and no one ate his hashes that I know of. How do we know these aren't just folktales passed from one generation to the next? Well, the vampire part is clearly not true, but there is evidence that these exhumations and reburied graves exist. Example, in 1990, a colonial cemetery was found. So people called the archaeologist and he started digging. He found a body within a grave that he described as rearranged. The skeleton had been beheaded, The skull and thigh bones rested on top of the ribs and vertebrae, you know, like a skull and bone symbol. More research showed that there were also rib fractures and other injuries. And interestingly enough, all of these injuries were not fatal because, you know, they happened five years after the person was buried. This grave was not positively identified, but according to the archaeologist, exhumations and reburials were not as rare as one would think. Apparently, each state dealt with vampires in a different way. Maine and parts of Massachusetts simply flipped the body upside down. Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont, well, they prefer to burn the dead person's heart and inhale the smoke as a cure. I'm starting to worry about that vampire blood incense I got from Vermont. So (laughs) if it wasn't vampires, what was actually going on? Well, there's no argument that people were dying in New England, especially in Rhode Island, but it wasn't vampires. There was a much more mundane cause, tuberculosis. In the early 1800s, research showed that one in 250 individuals in eastern U.S. died of TB. There are many accounts out there. The Dr. Reverend Justice Forward, a Yale graduate, and his name was Dr. Reverend, <laughs> lost many members of his family and wanted to open the graves of his dead children to see if any of the deceased were praying on the living in Belchertown, Massachusetts in 1788. And this is a Dr. Reverend, by the way. (laughs) In Woodstock, Vermont, in 1830, and in many other stories found in history, all of this happened as well. But tuberculosis isn't a new disease. In fact, there is evidence of tuberculosis found in a Neolithic grave from 5000 BC in Germany. But there's no historical account of any vampire burning back then. Vampire legends are not unique to Romania and North America. Now, pardon my pronunciations here. Please don't tweet at me if I mispronounce something. I googled all of these and there's so many pronunciations out there. 
In Ireland in the 700s, some corpses had rocks rammed in their mouths to stop them from biting the living. Greek folklore talks about vrikolakas, corpses engorged with fresh blood. The Vikings had draugr. In Germanic cultures, there's nachzira, sucking the blood of other corpses. There's also the xiangxi, or hopping vampires of China, and the Arabic rul. In the Philippines, the kalag, or aswang, can be heard in the graveyards eating newly buried bodies. Even the indigenous Australians, who were on an island all their own over 62,000 years ago, have the blood-sucking yaramayahu. So why did they think that people sick with consumption were vampires? Well, let me read to you a verbatim account from a doctor in 1799. The emaciated figure strikes one with terror, the forehead covered with drops of sweat, the cheeks painted with a livid crimson, the eyes sunk, the little fat that raised them in their orbits entirely wasted, the pulse quick and tremulous, the nails long, bending over the ends of the fingers, the palms of the hands dry and painfully hot to the touch, the breath offensive, quick, and laborious. I'm not going to lie, it sounds a little bit like me when I'm hungover. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Uh, it's hard to believe we used to do such crazy things back in the day, but please tell me we have grown since we hunted vampires. Yes, we now know all about tuberculosis and even have a vaccine. Oh, yeah. I heard on Reddit that it comes with a free microchip. Maybe that's the modern vampire hunt. Well, duh. And Bill Gates has nothing better to do than track us. So let's talk about tuberculosis, or as it was called back then, consumption. Tuberculosis is considered preventable and curable disease. In the U.S., the vaccine is not widely used because tuberculosis is under control. TB is caused by a bacterium called Mycobacterium tuberculosis. This bacteria attacks the lungs, but it can also attack any part of the body like the kidney, spine, or brain. Not everybody infected with TB becomes sick. It spreads through the air from one person to another. So when someone with TB of the lungs or throat coughs, speaks, or sings, the bacteria can get into the air. Then whoever's nearby could possibly breathe in this bacteria and become infected. The bacteria generally settles in the lung and grows. Then it could move through the blood to other parts of the bodies, like I said before, the kidney, spine, or brain. The pathogen that causes TB was discovered in 1882 by Robert Koch. I practice that name a lot. (laughs) (laughs) This TB pathogen is responsible for more human death than any other pathogen today. And yes, you heard that right, 1882. Before the Brown family tragedy. They didn't have Twitter back then, so they probably didn't get the news right away. All right. Back in the 1900s, Albert Calmette and Camille Guerin began their research for a TB vaccine in the Pasteur incident in Lille, France. Now, fast forward to 2021, and given everything we know about the infectiousness of TB, the World Health Organization still tracked 10.6 million cases of TB, including 1.6 million deaths. In fact, more people die of tuberculosis than of AIDS. Luckily, in the U.S., there are now less than 10,000 cases a year. In 1993, that number was over 25,000. Holy cow. So we have a vaccine, and yet impoverished countries 
don't have enough access to it, unheard of. That never happens. Well, at least they're not burning the bodies. <laughs> Unfortunately, like malaria, another preventable and curable disease, it all comes down to money. But you know what's scary? There was an outbreak in Mankato, Minnesota in 2019 at a university with 30 people testing positive. There was an outbreak of TB in Washington State Prison in 2021 with 244 cases. Now, between 2014 and 2020, before this outbreak, there were zero cases. In fact, in September 2022, the State Department of Labor and Industries fined this Stafford Creek Correction Center more than $80,000 for putting workers at risk during the tuberculosis outbreak. Too long didn't listen. In short summary, in the late 17 and 1800s, people died of consumption, i.e. tuberculosis. But some New Englanders thought that people who died came back and infected the living, causing them to die of consumption. Because TB was so highly infectious, when one family member was infected, it easily passed on to other family member. So these good town folk wanted to stop the disease from jumping from one member to another by digging up the corpse, burning their heart and liver, and feeding the rashes to a sick family member. We don't do that anymore, but we still have over a million deaths of tuberculosis globally every year. And I can't stress this enough, but TB is preventable and curable. In fact, unless it's the drug-resistant version of TB, all your local doctor has to do is prescribe you streptomycin or something similar, and you're good to go within a few months. If you want to know more about New England's obsession with exhumations and heartburnings, I highly recommend you read Food for the Dead by Michael Bell. He actually tracked down evidence of 80 exhumations as early as the 1700s and reaching as far west as Minnesota, but mostly in New England. And if you're in New England, be sure to visit some of these graves. But please don't break off a piece or desecrate the graves like some assholes do. Be respectful. As always, thank you so much for listening and for sticking with us. We're new, we're figuring it out, and our quality's only going to keep improving. That's all we got for you today. Join us every other week for another story from the annals of history. If you enjoyed this, please go on and rate us on your favorite podcast channel. We can't do this without your support. And if you have a historical event you'd like to share, hit us up. You can also find us online at Oh The Good Old Days on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at Oh, the good old days. That's oh, the good old days with old and days sharing one D. You know what, Ellie? Maybe the good old days weren't so good after all. I'm thinking they weren't. <laughs> mm-hmm.